And uh, could we pray and ask for God's help as we head into this last part of our study, okay? Father, thank you uh, for the privilege of teaching these brothers and sisters. And I pray you'd help me to speak in a way that would be generally beneficial and edifying and further equip them for the work of the ministry. Uh, help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Alrighty, um, <clears throat> let me talk with you about some things that I did to put the orientation into practice. I talked to you about, I learned to think about some things differently, but uh, because everything in our church was kind of blown up in the air, I was able to make some significant changes in philosophy of ministry and how we did things and come down and stay in the same place. So uh, one of the things that um, I had done during this time period is I had spent uh, extended period of time just reading in the Gospels. And the heartache I went through didn't uh, so much uh, rattle my uh, faith in God as much as it made it clear to me I needed to learn a lot about how to work with people. And so I thought, well, Jesus Christ was perfect. I mean, he knows he knew how to work with people. So I studied the Gospels, not so much for what Christ taught, but I studied paying particular attention to how did Jesus deal with people. And as a result of that, um, I came up with this terminology. I learned from what I call Christ levels of ministry. In other words, Jesus Christ did not deal with everybody in every situation the same way. And the way I broke it down was this. Number one, he had what I call a multitude ministry. And, um, you know, like uh, one of my favorite New Testament passages is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, verse 1 starts out, And seeing the multitudes, Jesus called them to him and said, And here comes the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And the Gospels record several multiple formal preaching and teaching times to the multitudes. And as I studied the life of Christ and his ministry, a couple of verses really stood out to me about Christ's multitude ministry. Here's one of them. Luke 19:48 says that the people were hanging on to every word he said. I thought, wow. That's communicating. Or here's one in Mark 12:37. The last part of the verse says, "And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him." That's the New American Standard. Uh, listen to how the New King James puts it: "The common man heard him gladly." And my heart burned within me. God, help me to be that kind of a preacher. So I thought, okay, I want to be more like Jesus and how I do ministry. Jesus had a public ministry, so I got to have a public ministry. Of course, as a pastor of a church, I already did. And I thought, okay, my multitude ministry is going to be the public services of our church. I may not have near the size of crowd he has, but it's my public ministry. And at that point in time, I was preaching or leading four services per week. Sunday school, a.m., Sunday night, Wednesday night. 
heavy load. And um, each of our services had a little bit different flavor. And so I thought about it, and I thought, okay, out of the four services, if I was going to make some significant changes to try to be more like Jesus, which one would have the most impact? And the answer for me was our Sunday morning worship service because I thought that's when we have the largest attendance. That's when we typically have use our best musicians. And it's when, as a church, we typically put our best foot forward. And when, uh, I think even from my preaching and teaching, I probably spend more time on my Sunday morning message than I do on some of the others. So I said, okay, I'm going to focus. Because I had learned by that point as a counselor, you can't change everything at the same time. You've got to pick one area, help people to be growing and changing in that area, get some progress going, then you can come back and pick up another area and work at it. And so I sought to apply my counseling understanding to this area of my own change and growth. And so I said, okay, I'm going to develop some specific growth strategies to help me do better in my public ministry or in what I called my multitude ministry. There were four things that I did that turned out to be very fruitful and helpful. Number one, I renewed my commitment to studying the Scripture to prepare well for preaching. And um, prior to that, especially during the time leading up to the split, I had preached way too many what I call Saturday night specials. And um, I repented of that purpose. I was going to renew my commitment to study. The second thing I did is I began reading regularly books on preaching. And those were very, very helpful. I'll recommend uh, one of them later. That was very helpful to me, stimulating to me. Something else that I did that really helped me is I was really struck by what Christ said said about the common man heard him gladly. And I thought that meant Christ was connecting with people. And I knew I needed to work at that. So what I did is I thought about different parts of my congregation. And, for example, I got a picture of one of our teenagers. And then I got a picture of one of our younger families just kind of getting started in life, young, real young kids. And then I got a picture of a family that's kind of middle-aged, and they got high school kids or kids off to college. Then I got a picture of an empty nester. And then I got a picture of a widow, one of our widows. And what I would do is when I would study, I'd line those pictures up around my desk. And the way I studied back then, this is before uh, laptops and computers and everything, is we we used real-life books. And uh, uh, I'd have my books all laid out in my note paper and everything. And But, you know, the way I did it is I'd be reading, study, but every so often I'd pause to look up and think, and I'd look at one of those pictures and think, now what's in this for them? And then I'd go back to studying and everything, and then I'd look and think, now, what's in this for the widows? And when I could answer that question for all those people on that list, I mean, I am locked and loaded. I am ready to go. Sunday morning can't come fast enough. That really helped me. I knew I was on to something doing that. I mean, I just, I just felt it in my soul that I was... People were listening better, and I was ministering better to them. 
And I just remember one Sunday morning, uh, I'm standing at the back greeting people as they go out, kind of our custom, and Rita, one of the elderly widows I mentioned earlier, she comes up, she puts her arm around me and says, Pastor, I just love your preaching. You're so simple. Uh, And I said, thank you, Rita. I work hard to be simple. (laughs) Uh, That was so encouraging to me. What she was saying is she could relate. That was so encouraging to me. Here's something else I did. And that was periodically I would go study at the pulpit. And I just grabbed my books. I had a big pulpit. And uh, I grabbed a few of my books and my Bible, my study tools, my paper. And I would uh, just go and study at the pulpit. I'd turn on the lights in the auditorium. And what I found was it was amazing how collecting my stuff and going to the pulpit, standing where in a few days I'm going to stand and preach the scriptures, it was amazing to me how quickly... I was tuned in to what I to the study, and what would happen for me is, you know, I'd be reading along for a while and everything, writing, taking notes. But every so often, I'd look up, and I could see where Joe and Maxine. I knew where Joe and Maxine be seated, so I'd preach at Joe and Maxine a little bit, or I'd preach to Dean and Bev a little bit, or Roger and Pam. And um, I remember one time I was standing at the pulpit. And I'm studying, and I looked up, and all of a sudden it just dawned on me. I've been working with one couple, just for a name, I'll call them Roger and Pam. And it's one of those couples where when you're counseling, it's two steps forward, one step back, two steps back, one step forward. You know, where you're just kind of what I call mudding along, not making any real progress, significant. And I'm preaching away, excuse me, I'm studying away, and I pause and look up, and in my mind's eye, I see where Roger and Pam will be sitting, and all of a sudden it dawns on me. This is it. This is exactly what Roger needs to hear. This, if he would hear this and obey it, this will change his marriage. This will change that family. And I remember leaving the pulpit, going down the center aisle, finding where they would sit, and kneeling where I thought they'd be sitting on Sunday and just praying and say, God, help me to say it so Roger will hear it. Help me to, by your spirit, to speak in such a way that the truth would grab him and he'd be brought to the point of repentance and there'd be a motivation to change and grow. That was great for me. Now, the last two things that I've mentioned, every one of you that teaches any kind of a class could do. You teach a ladies' Bible study. You teach a junior high girls' class. Teach senior high boys or something. You could go study where you're going to teach. You can get some pictures, line them up of your kids. And you could study thinking, how am I going to present the word in such a way that this person will understand it? And you can pray for them.
One of my, my goals during this time was I wanted to become the kind of preacher who could carry the service. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I had realized, I'd learned earlier, that, you know, worship service is made up of different elements. And sometimes you'll have something happen that even if everything else in the church, the service just kind of falls apart, that one part will carry it. I mean, there were times when we had people give testimonies. I mean, it didn't matter if the, the ushers dropped the offering plate, if I forgot my outline and f- my message just fell off the front of the pulpit. People would walk to their car saying, man, I'm so glad I came to that. I mean, that testimony was something, wasn't it? Or there was occasions, occasionally, when the music would be just such, I mean, it's like it lifted our hearts toward heaven. And, you know, even if the ushers dropped the offering plate and uh, my message was lousy and everything, people still walked to their car saying, well, I'm so glad that that worship time was tremendous. I mean, the worship carried the service. My prayer was, God, help me to be the kind of preacher who can carry the service. And that was my desire, that if the music's off, the ushers drop the offering plate, things just don't go well. God, help me to preach in such a way that people will still walk to their car saying, I'm so glad I came today. I needed that message. And I'd encourage you in the opportunities you have to teach, to teach that way. Teach your Sunday school class that way. Teach your youth group. Teach your ladies study that way. That they'll walk to the car saying, thank God I came. I needed that one. Pray that God would help you to do that. So, learning from Christ levels of ministry. Christ had a multitude ministry. My goal was I'd have a multitude ministry. And here's the things I did to try to grow in that area. Christ not only had a multitude ministry, but he had a ministry to the twelve. And it's interesting, uh, out of the multitudes, he chose 12 that they might be with him. And as I studied, how did Christ deal with the 12? And again, I'm studying Christ. How did he do ministry? Here's a passage of Scripture that really uh, spoke to me and helped me. Mark 4, 33 and 34 says, With many such parables he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he was not speaking to them without parables, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Now, this was uh, significant for me because growing up, uh, my pastor had taught us, I still remember that, my pastor had taught at one class I went to that a parable was a story that Jesus told to make truth clear. That was always troubling to me because when I would read the parables... I would think, what is this about? Well, I, through my study during this time period I'm telling you about, I came to think that my dear pastor was wrong. Christ didn't tell parables to make the truth clear. He told parables to stir people's interest. And notice what it says. He wasn't teaching them anything except through a parable. And look at those last verses. But when, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. So can you imagine? Here's Christ. He does some teaching, a bunch of crowd, multitude ministry. And afterwards, you know, people, they dismiss people going home. And he gets off of the disciples. Can't you just picture the disciples saying, hey, what was that all about? 
And then Christ begins explaining it to him. All right? And uh, so I thought, okay, Christ dealt with the twelve differently than he did the multitudes. So I thought, okay, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be able to, the common man would hear him gladly, the way the scripture says about Jesus. I want to be that kind of preacher. So I thought, okay, Christ had this ministry to the twelve. What's going to be my application? So my personal application was just groups. I didn't think there was any particular magic about the number 12. It's just he had 12. It was a group. And uh, I thought, okay, I got groups. In fact, I realized when I started thinking about this, I'm with groups all the time. Uh, I meet with my deacons at least once a month. I meet with deaconesses at least once a month for planning. And we had a, a Word of Life youth leaders that I met with once a month for planning and praying and working together. And I met with our Word of Life Olympian leaders once a month. I met with the, as we're trying to rebuild the music program, the worship committee once a month. I thought, I'm meeting with groups all the time. So I think, okay, how am I going to be like Jesus the way I work with groups? And then I found myself thinking, okay, out of all the groups I work with, which one, I can't change everything at the same time, which one could I work with that would lead to the most progress, have the most significant impact? For me, the answer is my deacons. They were all men of influence in the church, and all of them were men that had stood tall during the, the split and everything. And um, so um, I was greatly influenced by how Christ asked questions of people. And you know, when Christ asked a question, it was not because he was looking for information. I mean, he knew what was in, in men's heart. Whenever Christ asked a question, it was for the benefit of the other person. So trying to learn from that, uh, I learned that a question can prick the conscience, an accusation hardens the will. And I noticed how Christ used questions to make people think, ponder where they were. So here was my growth strategies. I told the chairman of our deacons, from now on, I get the first half hour of every deacons meeting. And uh, here's the way it would happen. <clears throat> we'd come together, guys would get their coffee, whatever, sit down. And uh, we'd have an opening prayer. And then I would say something like this. Okay, guys, we're going to start our meeting tonight with a what if. And so here's one of the what ifs that I used that we got a lot of good mileage from. The uh, what if I used was this one. I said, what if uh, next Sunday... You've been over in the other building for Sunday school. You're walking across the parking lot. And one of the teenage girls, Susie, comes up and says, Mr. So-and-so, can I talk to you? And you stop and say, well, sure. And uh, you notice right away that she seems nervous, and she's talking real fast, kind of clipping her words. And she says, well, Mr. So-and-so, you know that I'm best friends with Julie, right? And you say, well, of course. I see you guys together all the time. In fact, I'm surprised you're not. To Where's Julie right now? And Susie says, well, that's part of the problem. She says, you can't tell it, but... You can tell the pastor, but you can't tell anybody else. Nobody knows this, but Julie's been dating this unsaved guy. I've been telling her she shouldn't do that. They've been doing things they shouldn't, and she is pregnant. And her boyfriend made her go to see Planned Parenthood, and they're scheduling her for an abortion. And I've told her she can't do that. That's murder. But Julie's upset with me, and I said, you got to tell your parents. And she says, I can't tell my parents. They'll kick me out of the house. Then she said... Um, 
I said, well, tell the pastor. She said, I can't tell the pastor. He'll kick me out of the church. And she says, I've talked to her about this so much now that she's angry at me now. She won't even return my, my text or anything. And I'm, I'm afraid she's going to commit suicide. I don't know what to do, but I know you're one of the leaders in the church, and you'll know what to do. And with that, she turns and walks away. <laughs> Men, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? And what scripture will drive your thinking, your response? You've got five minutes, no talking, ready, begin. And the rules were, five minutes you can't talk. And you just got to search your Bible. What I taught the guys to do in tough situations where you don't know what to do, go to the book of Proverbs, go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, go to the book of Ephesians, go to the book of Colossians, go to the book of James, or go to the book of First Peter. Or you might look at Romans 6, 7, and 8. I mean, those are the key passages that deal with progressive sanctification. And uh, there's others, but, I mean, you get to those, you can get a lot of help. Colossians 3 and so forth. So I just said, just start leafing through your Bible. Look at verses you've underlined. And um, start there. So after five minutes, I'd call time. And the ground rules were that after we called time, the first thing you had to do was to say, the verse that would guide my thinking would be this one. And then you got to read your verse, verse or verses. And then after you read it, you say, now, because of this verse, I think what I'd say to Susie is, or what I'd do is this. Okay, next person, read your verse. What would you do? Next verse. And then we go around. And if you're the first person to respond, by the way, by the time four or five other people have responded, you're thinking, ooh, that's a good, I should have thought of that or something. <laughs> and uh, so our custom was that after everybody had gone around, then I would say, okay, we've had some good input. Now it's a reshuffle time. You've got three minutes. Change your opinion. Change your verse. You've got three minutes. Ready? Begin. And then we'd have three minutes. We'd go back and do it again. All right, who wants to be first this time? Read your verse. What would you do? What would you say? Everybody go around. And what you would see happening, if you were sitting off to the side watching, is you would see that on that kind of a sticky issue, as they start, there's a lot of diversity on how to respond, because there are a lot of ways you could respond to that story I just gave you, that what if. But as we talk, there's a growing consensus. It's not like this, but I mean, it's just, there's a coming together in general principles. So toward the end, I would comment on things. I'd offer my suggestions on how I think we ought to respond. And then I'd say, okay, any, uh, any questions? Anybody? And then I would say something like, okay, are we agreed in principle on how, as leaders of this church, we should respond in that kind of a situation? I said, we, we all hope none of our girls gets pregnant, and we hope none of them think about an abortion or go through with that. But if we're going to be, uh, our, one of our sayings was, if we want to be a hospital for sinners, not just a showcase for saints, if we're reaching people, we're going to have some people coming with these kind of issues. So any questions, guys? Okay. All right. Then I'd say, well, let's pray then. And then here's what I would do. I'd say, now, with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, we've just talked about a very sticky situation. We hope this will never happen with any of our kids, any of our teens, but it might. And we've talked about a lot of different passages, different ways of approaching this, and we've, kind of, we've come to a general agreement on how this ought to be handled. So now the question is not, what should I do for each of you men, for each of us men, but will I do it? 
So I'm asking you, if that kind of a situation arises, will you obey the Scripture and do what we've talked about, no matter what, no matter who, no matter when, and no matter where? If you would, would you please raise your hand? And even if their heads bowed and their eyes closed, I mean, hands go up all around the table, and even with their eyes closed, guys can hear the rustling of clothes. What that communicates to them is, if I get ready to walk out on the limb of obeying the Bible in a sticky, tough situation, I'm not going to be the only guy out there. And I'd say, thank you, you put your hands down. And then I would pray and thank God for them and ask God to help us be true to our commitment. In Jesus' name, amen. And then I say to the chairman, okay, we can move on to the agenda. Now, I want you to think about the cumulative impact of doing that kind of thing month after month after month with the deacons. Later, I started doing that with the deaconesses, female deaconesses. Then I started doing it with our youth leaders. Then I started doing it with the Olympian leaders, the worship team. Think about the cumulative impact of doing that. The result was that I had, I ended up with a church of, of men and women who knew which page to turn to to help somebody. And it motivated them to study the Bible, to memorize the scripture, to mark things up. I mean, to get ready. Six months after I resigned and left the church, we had a very sad situation where a member of the church was charged with uh, child abuse. And the deacons investigated, and the guy had got lawyered up, and there was overwhelming evidence. Later he was convicted and sent to prison. And um, the deacons... Uh, did what they could to confront him and saw he was unrepentant and they brought it to the church and the church disciplined the man unanimously. By this time, I'm serving as the state representative for our state fellowship of churches and I'm learning that in a fellowship of churches that prides itself on their commitment to the Bible, we got all kinds of churches. We had 124 churches in our fellowship. I'm just beginning to learn. We got a whole bunch of churches that don't practice church discipline. And here, the church I had served just did it without a pastor. And someone said to me, Randy, how do you explain that? Why would Western Baptist Church discipline a guy without a pastor? And I thought about it, and my answer is, that is the fruit of people month after month after month saying, I'll obey the Bible. From the congregation standpoint at that point, it was a no-brainer. We'll do what the Bible says. In your notes, you'll see that I've included a what-if. This is one that was prepared by Brad Bigney. Brad heard me make this presentation years ago. And uh, he started doing this with a lot of his leaders. Here's one that he prepared that uh, you see it in your notes there, the what-if. And you can give you some ideas from that on uh, maybe some things that you would want to try or take and adapt it and 
<clears throat> he kind of took my simple idea and he put stuff in print when, when I didn't. I just had the guys, I just make stuff up that might happen. All right, we've got to move on. Uh, <clears throat> Christ not only had a ministry to the multitude, he also had a ministry to the twelve, but Christ also had a ministry to the three. So as I'm studying the life of Christ, I see this. And what strikes me is the scriptures do not record any special teaching time that Christ gave the three, Peter, James, and John. The way Christ ministered to the three was primarily centered around events. In other words, Christ took the three with him, Mark 5, for the healing of Jairus' daughter. And you go back and read Mark 5, I mean, that was something to see. That would have been a deal to see that one. Uh, the, the, the three were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, that was a super deal. Uh, I mean, imagine that one. And then they were with him in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane in the inner part. So, as I studied, okay, Christ dealt with these three who become so significant in the church, the development of the church after Christ is gone. He did it through events. So I'm thinking, okay, I want to be like Jesus in the way I minister. Uh, my application is individuals. I, again, I didn't think there was particularly magic in the number three. It's just he, these three guys, he just ministered to differently than he did the multitude or the twelve. So I thought, okay, how am I going to be like Jesus? So I decided that I was going to start meeting with three to five men per week privately. And with the kind of men I served, um, the best time to do that was breakfast or lunch. In 12 years of pastoring, I never had a wife get mad at me for meeting her husband at 6 o'clock in the morning for breakfast. And um, I started out by just, you know, looking for something meaningful in a guy's life and use that as an excuse, like if he got a promotion or he bought a new truck or uh, they had a child born or something. But later I just found out, fully, I'll just, I'll create the event. And I just started asking guys, hey, can I have breakfast or lunch with you? And uh, so when I would meet with a guy, here's what I learned to do. Uh, and most of my meals with people are about an hour. So think about an hour. I would plan to spend about the first half hour in what I would call chit-chat or relationship building. And just, you know, at guy talk, you know, like, why in the world did you buy a Chevy when you could have bought a Ford? And, uh, you know, you've been hunting recently or just, you know, whatever's going on in the guy's life. And depending on how well I knew him, but about a half hour into the, the meal, I, my goal was to turn the conversation and I want to talk to the man about you, about you, God, about you and God, you, God, and key people in your life. That was the, the, my outline. And the way I learned to do it that seemed to work well is uh, I would say to the guy, and this is back before we have all the technology we have now, I would say, hey, let's pretend that we got a phone sitting here and that I could call God long distance and say, hey, Lord, as you know, I'm having breakfast here with Bill. And I could ask the Lord this question. What are the three things that you're most pleased about, Lord, in Bill's life? Bill, if I could make that phone call, what do you think God would tell me? And it's really interesting to hear what men think God is pleased with in their life. And you'd, sometimes a guy say, well, I, I am trying to read the Bible a little bit more. Oh, that's good. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to spend more time with my wife. And that's good. 
And I'm, I'm doing, working hard on my anger. You know, oh, give me opportunities to commend the guy. One of the biggest surprises after I've done this, you know, I, I did this for a long time. My biggest surprise was I'd ask the question, what do you think God's most pleased with you? And my biggest surprise was how many men said, I can't think of anything. I said, really? I said, well, then this is your lucky day because I can help you with that problem. And that oftentimes set the stage for formal counseling and um, things. Uh, then I'd say, hey, well, let me ask, say, call God uh, again. And I'd say, uh, Lord, what are the three areas of Bill's life where you'd most like to see him change going forward? And in response to that question, I've had men reveal to me that they're enslaved to pornography. One guy revealed that he's hooked on gambling and he spent most of their money and his wife doesn't know it. Um, guys frequently would tell me, well, God want me to read my Bible more. I said, okay, good. How often do you read your Bible? Well, maybe one time last week. And I said, you know, you're right. God wants you to read his Bible more than that. And uh, one of the most frequently given things that grew out of that was I would say to guys, listen, I'm going to make a deal with you. You need to start reading your Bible more. I want you to start reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, three times a week. And on Sunday, and I'd give the guys the 3 by 5 card. I said, I want you to give me this 3 by 5 card on Sunday. And I want you to write down the day and time you read and just write out the most meaningful verse from each day's reading. Here's the deal. You give me two 3 by 5 cards. We'll meet in two more weeks uh, for breakfast. You can buy, I'm buying then. You can pay any, buy anything you want. And um, one of the things that I enjoy the most during those last years of pastoring was on Sunday collecting three-by-five cards from men. And I tell them, now, if I don't have two three-by-five cards, we're still going to meet in two weeks, but we're going to a nicer restaurant, and you're buying. <laughs> and uh, they'd always laugh and agree to it. And uh, it's one of the things I miss the most about pastoring, was collecting the three-by-five cards from guys on Sunday. So um, when... Uh, when I left the pastorate, the church had a nice going-away party for us, service, and they had different people give testimonies. And one of the guys that gave a testimony was an older man who had served as chairman of deacons for one year and a man I'd had to confront prior to that on some things. And he said, my wife and I have been in some good churches. We've had some famous preachers. We've really appreciated the preaching teaching here and Randy's faithfulness. He said, one thing uh, that has made Randy a special pastor to me is, he said, I've observed a lot of pastors are lions in the pulpit. They're whipped pups in private. And he said, with Randy, he said, I found that he is, he can be, you know, bold in the pulpit, and we all know he can get after us on occasion. But he said, I've really appreciated his one-on-one meetings with me at breakfast or lunch when he's confronting me 18 inches, nose to nose, about where I am spiritually. He said, I've never had a pastor do that before. That really stuck with me. Because I just, uh, that made me realize how significant that is for a man to have another man talk to him straight up about where he is spiritually. So...
Well, let me race through the rest of this. I do want to make this statement. Diligence and focusing on all three levels of ministry leads to having a fully biblical strategy for making disciples and equipping them for ministry. You have a multitude ministry, 12 ministry, and then a three ministry. Let me close with this. I also learned some things from Christ handling a failure. Um, the most significant failure in the New Testament, in my mind, is Peter's denial of Christ. And a lot of people would agree with that. So as I studied, how did Christ deal with somebody who failed? Well, first of all, I noticed that he warned him. Luke twenty-two thirty-one says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded the permission to sift you like wheat. Uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-four says, he said, uh, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow on today until you've denied me three times that you know me. So God was dealing with me in my own heart about, okay, am I going to be like Jesus? And I'm mentally I'm wanting to say yes, but I knew what that mean, meant for me. It meant that when I thought people were headed toward trouble, I had to go tell them. And particularly men don't like that, many cases. And I just had to wrestle with you. You really want to be like Jesus? Okay, you got to warn people. Usually that's privately. But Christ not only warned, but he gave hope. He said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. But we know he did fail. So the third thing that happened is Christ confronted him after failure. Let, let me read you a verse of Scripture that you're probably familiar with. Luke 22:60 says, after Peter, third denial, but Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Here's the next verse in the Gospel of Luke. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that look? You know what the verse after that says? Peter left and wept bitterly. Uh, as I considered that passage, it dawned on me that there is power, I think, there's, I'll say it this way, there's significance in a sinning person being faced by a righteous person, particularly somebody who's ministered to them in the past. And for me, that meant... Um, I needed to start going and confronting some people who had just left the church in a sinful way. It was going to be uncomfortable, but if I was going to be like Jesus, I had to go do that. He also confronted him, John twenty-one fifteen. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? But I know there's different changes in the terminology, but the point is he confronted him after the failure. And you notice he confronted him using questions, not just his personal uh, looking at him. And then number four, he challenged him to serve again. John twenty-one fifteen, tend my lambs. Verse 16, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. The point is, there, is, there can be fruitful ministry after significant failure. We do serve the God of the second chance. So part of my conclusion to you folks is this. I would exhort you all in your life and in your ministries to strive for no new lows. 
Here's what I mean by that. In the first session, I told you about the lowest point in my own life in my ministry. Now, I'll tell you, I've had low points since then. But they've all been higher than that one. And think about it. Isn't that progressive sanctification? Right? So I would encourage you, strive for no new lows. And then if you want a passage just to encourage you, kind of be the conclusion to what I've been talking about in these sessions, I love Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Wonderful passages. Okay, here's some recommendations. Um, Preaching with purpose. Uh, Those of you that are in, uh, get to preach and teach the scriptures formally, I'd really encourage you to get it. You don't have to be a formal preacher preacher, but... Anybody that teaches the Bible can benefit from this one on how to handle the scriptures and how to present it. The book on the right is called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And this is one that God used in a powerful way in my own life by uh, Kent Hughes. It's just, it's just excellent. I'm so thankful for that, for that book. And then another book that I draw your attention to is called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love by Jonathan Lehman. And it talks about both church membership and church discipline. And it's very, very helpful. Did you get the other titles, or do you want me to go back to that one? You could. Okay. Preaching with proof. Okay, we've got just a few minutes uh, for questions, or we can beat the fundamentals to the refreshments. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good observation. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Okay, other observations or questions? Okay, doke. Well, we'll wrap up. Uh, tomorrow morning, we need you in your seats promptly. A little before 9 a.m., we're going to start right at 9. So get some rest, and uh, we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. God bless you, and thank you for your careful attention tonight.